0: All right, Ephesians chapter number one, Ephesians chapter number one, and I want to begin by reading the first six verses. We've covered uh, the first five over the previous weeks as we've been in this study, but I'd like to read all of them and bring us to the text we'll be looking at this morning, which will be primarily in verse number six. Ephesians chapter number one, beginning in verse number one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. I want to take for our subject this morning that expression in verse number 6, He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. There's an emphasis there on the word us. Only from the standpoint that it's almost remarkable that we would even be considered. But it says, "He hath made us accepted in the beloved." Verse number six clearly explains to us one of the great mysteries of God. That great mystery of God is the glory of His grace. The glory of His grace, declared by verse six, shows us, is acceptance with Him in the beloved or acceptance with Him in Christ. The Beloved here is a reference to Christ Himself. To be accepted in the Beloved is to receive and to know and to be aware of a great spiritual blessing. It's one of the other branches of the subjects we've been talking about, one of the branches of election and, of course, one of the branches of predestination. To be accepted in the Beloved. We have sung about it today, we have read about it today, and now we're considering again how great the love of God that we've received from God the Father and from the Son must be. We have to consider this love, and we've got to consider that the central theme of this love is found in Christ, who's called the Beloved. The word Beloved, I just did a quick view this morning, is mentioned no less than 106 times in Scripture. We can trace that title throughout the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry, but we can also trace it back through the words that the Lord, the God the Father said of His own Son. He used the word beloved. To God the Father, Christ was beloved. The word beloved also shows us or gives us a picture of God's pleasure. To be one of the beloved means that you have the pleasure of God. To have the pleasure of God means that we must have the pleasure of the Son. So we've got to see the significance of it. You cannot be one of the beloved apart from Christ. It is spiritually impossible to be beloved of God and to be outside of Christ. So the significance comes in, we'll begin to talk about the reality of when did God the Father use this term beloved the most with regard to his own Son? He used that terminology primarily when Jesus was here on this earth. We refer to that as the incarnation. We refer to that as the time that Jesus left the throne of heavenly glory from the right hand of the Father and came to this earth, took on that robe of human flesh, never ceasing to be God for a single moment. It is in that terminology and in that environment that God the Father most uses the term beloved of his own Son. The term beloved is more used towards us after Jesus Christ has already ascended and gone back to the Father. I think there's some significance in that, and we'll deal with that this morning. But when we think about the significance of the virgin birth, we consider the significance of the incarnation of Christ, it draws our attention back to the object of God's love, the Father's love, which is Jesus Christ. The object of the Father's love is towards Jesus Christ, the Beloved the eternal Son of God. If we think about it just in human terms, the idea of an incarnation is an almost unimaginable, unthinkable scenario playing out. How can it be that the Lord Himself sends His only begotten Son into this world to become the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, while at the same time, while in the incarnation, or while he's got on this robe of human flesh, God the Father, who loves his Son, his beloved, is going to allow, and in many cases, pour out his own wrath upon his Son to suffer on behalf of unworthy sinners. That, in fact, is what the incarnation demonstrates to us. The love of God is never more on display then when Jesus Christ the Son empties himself of his royalty, he doesn't cease to be God, but he empties himself of all of his privileges, all of his rights, and he allows himself to suffer for the sake of unworthy sinners. The very pinnacle of our salvation rests on God's Father, on God on the Father, God the Father's love towards the Son the very pinnacle of our salvation rests on God the Father's love towards His Son. It is not the other way around. In fact, that God loves us first. No, we know the Scripture teaches that God loved the Son. So this word beloved, when it's used in reference to us, has to be viewed through the eyes or through the viewfinder of seeing Christ first. In other words, I cannot be counted as the beloved if I'm not in Christ, because Christ is the Beloved. The believer and their acceptance in the Beloved truly surpasses anything our minds can even begin to think about. To have acceptance with a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God really boggles the imagination, and it really, it's almost unthinkable to describe. But it has to be viewed through the idea of the glory of God and the riches of His grace. You see, when we think about the word grace, the glory of His grace, God is essentially glorious. God is essentially glorious. When God glorifies His grace, He is glorifying His entire character. So if grace is essentially God, and He is essentially glorious, it is the very aspect or very element of who He is, the essence of who He is, when He glorifies His grace, He is glorifying His entire character. Grace is the very platform in which all of His other aspects of His deity kind of reveal themselves. When I start looking at the grace of God and I consider the riches of his grace, I am showing the very it's the very platform on which God demonstrates who he is. And yet we're told in verse 6 to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us. We become the recipients of this essential grace, this glorious grace. The Father accepts us only as He accepts His Son. Nothing I do makes me acceptable to God. The only thing that makes my acceptance in God the Father or to God Himself is His acceptance of His Son, the Beloved. It humbles us to consider and to think because we all have an element of us that thinks there's got to be something good enough in me that God would at least count it count me at least partially worthy of his acceptance. But the reality is, biblically speaking, there's nothing in us that's worthy of his acceptance, even the very smallest minute detail of our life, no matter how how good we think we are. Acceptance is based upon his son, the beloved. When that acceptance, what does acceptance mean? Acceptance means to be accepted in God means it's the acceptance of our persons as being righteous, redeemed, and sanctified. To have acceptance with God means that I have to be accepted in my righteousness, in my redemption, and in my sanctification. God the Father can only look one place to find all three of those things, in His beloved, His Son. God the Father looks upon Christ and if he finds accept, if we find acceptance with him, it's because he sees Christ when he looks to us. A mystery that Paul writes about, and we won't get to this for some time, but in Ephesians chapter number two, verses five through seven, as Paul is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing about being saved by grace, this is, this is familiar for most of us. In verses 5 through 7, Paul makes this most interesting statement. He says, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. There's kind of a very weird contrast there. When we were dead, he hath quickened. Dead, but made alive. Dead in sins, but made alive with Christ hath quickened us together, there's that word again, us, together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. This great mystery of God, how can something that's dead in sin suddenly be made alive with Christ? By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're described as not only being dead but being made alive by the grace of God. But He has in fact raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. This great mystery of God. We're already seated in heavenly places yet we find ourselves bodily seated here. In a little building on Petrie Road. But yet seated in heavenly places. (laughs) Not, we will be seated, we're already seated there. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And we're told the reason why all this is so, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I could boast in a single ounce of my acceptance with God, I would be doing it wrong. My acceptance with God is only in and through and by Christ. My acceptance with God is only because when God the Father looks at me, He looks at His Son, and when He looks at His Son, the Bible declares that He is well-pleased. These two phrases, to the praise and the glory of His grace. We've seen this already on display before we get to the actual word or the phrase today. We've seen this in the first five verses. When we think about the praise of the glory of His grace, the, gl- the glory of the grace of God reveals or as manifestly uh, shows itself even in the very fact of predestination which we've talked about. The glory of the grace of God appears in our adoption which we've studied that uh, even on Wednesday evening. In the fact, especially with regard to adoption, God the Father had no need of any sons. God did not adopt because He needed a son. He did not adopt because He needed a daughter. He did not need anything else. He already had His only begotten Son, the Son in which He is well pleased. This pretty much does away with the idea that God adopted us because He needed something. God didn't adopt us because He was lacking or in need. He adopted us and put into his family merely by the glory of his grace. The glory of the grace of God is that those he adopts are unworthy of even having that relationship. We're unworthy of having the relationship of even being called the son of God and even being told that we can call on him as our father. This relationship is not based upon our worth personally, but it's only based upon his grace. In order for that adoption, he provided Christ as a redeemer. Christ as the redeemer opens up the way for our acceptance and opens up the reality of how this grace has been shown to us. What's interesting is that all throughout this letter that the Apostle Paul writes, he circles back repeatedly, back to acceptance, back to being accepted in the Beloved. When he talks about God's grace, he reminds us about acceptance. When he talks about God's grace, he reminds us about Christ's righteousness. This acceptance in the beloved, the glory of God's grace, is that he alone appoints the grace of faith to the receiver. In other words, he or she that receives the grace of God, it was appointed by God to demonstrate that grace. The glory of God, remember, folks, is the end and the supreme end of all that God does. The glory of God. The glory of God is not just a part of a hymn that we sing. It's not just part of a doctrinal statement. It's not just part of a terminology. It's not just a definition. The glory of God is the supreme end of God. That's the entirety of why he does everything that he does is for his glory. And he doesn't share his glory with anyone else. He doesn't even share his glory with you, but he makes you accepted in the beloved in order that you might be a partaker of that glory. Which is utterly amazing to me. An unworthy sinner invited to be a partaker in the glory of God, which is the supreme end of why God does what he does. There aren't many more things that are more misunderstood than what the glory of God is. But the glory of God that supreme end, includes the glory of His grace. Not just the glory of His power, not just the glory of His other perfections, but the manifestation of that glory. In other words, what Paul has in mind here is not just all the individual things, but that the fact that His glory is being manifested when you are accepted in the Beloved. That's God's glory being manifested. We could glory in God's power, and we should. We should glory in the the doctrine of adoption and the glory in the doctrine of predestination and election and justification. We should glory in those things, but what I really want us to see, and I think Paul is teaching us this, is that the greatest demonstration of the glory of God is seen in your acceptance. That you've been accepted in the beloved as an unworthy recipient who is the object of the, adopting, of the adoption of God. And he didn't even need us. He didn't need a son. He didn't need a daughter. What's interesting is Paul, in, in addition to the word or the phrase, the glory of his grace, he uses the phrase or the word to the praise. Where is the praise coming from? Well, look at it again. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So we have to ask ourselves the question, who's the one doing the praising? It's the recipients, or those who've been accepted. It's the us. It is the us, this is bad grammar, it is the us who's doing the praising. We're doing the praising, why? Because we've been accepted in the beloved, and it is a manifestation of the glory of God which in turn leads us to manifest praise. The praise of the glory is when the children of God ascribe and give all of the glory and all of the thanksgiving to their adoption and acceptance to the free grace of God. When we sing these hymns that ascribe the glory of God to our salvation and praise God for the salvation, I hope we're singing with the reality that we're not ascribing part of the praise We're ascribing all of the praise. We're ascribing everything about our salvation. Our entire acceptance before God is given over to Him and what He has done in us. He hath made us, you see that phrase, He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Our response is a response of praise. Praise is not just what we say with our lips. It's not just what we say in our prayer. Praise, I think Paul plays this out and shows this throughout as we, as we go through the journey through the book of Ephesians. Paul's greatest demonstration of praise is not so much even exactly the words of praise that he says, but in the actions of his life. He walks worthy of the relationship that he now has. He actually uses that terminology in Ephesians chapter number 4 in verse 1 when he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He wasn't talking about walk worthy of your job. He was talking walk worthy that you've been called unto this marvelous grace of God. That is the praise of the glory of His grace. The thought of God's love ought to lead us to an outpouring of praise. Back in Ephesians 1, if you drop down a couple of verses, I think we've referenced this at least the last couple of meetings together. Ephesians 1, here is the result of what praise looks like. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. We spoke about this a little bit on Wednesday night. That Holy Spirit is the one that is the part of the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance. What, we are, what we've been left with now is that evidence. It's the evidence that we are the recipients of God's love. We are the recipients of God's acceptance. It's a continual outpouring of praise to this God who not only has the power, and this is important, He not only has the power to overcome everything that keeps those dead in their sins, but He has the the ability to remove any obstacle that would prevent a dead person spiritually from coming into a living relationship with Him. It's one thing to say God has the power to do it. It's another thing to say God has not only the power to do it, but He will overcome all the obstacles that would keep a dead man in his sin and keep him away from God. God says, I'll overcome all the obstacles through the Beloved. That living relationship. We'll learn more about that. We've already read those verses from Ephesians 2 this morning. But when we get to Ephesians 2, we'll deal, again, primarily with that living relationship. And then that second phrase back in our, in our, in our verse, verse 6. Wherewith he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Accepted in the beloved is to be accepted in his own beloved son. So, the Lord Jesus Christ is the beloved of God. Beloved of God the Father. He was beloved in eternity past. He will be beloved in eternity present. And he will be beloved in eternity future. Jesus Christ has always been the beloved. Some have made the false assumption That Jesus Christ was not the beloved until he went to the cross. The Bible would suggest otherwise. He's always been the beloved. Acceptance is by Christ's nearness to the Father. Christ has been made, has been given access to the counsel of God, to the purposes of God. The Father, the Bible says, has put all things into Christ's hands and shows Him that all that He does. God the Father, even throughout Scripture, says, Here is my beloved Son. Give Him the honor. Give Him the glory. Not only as man, but as the mediator between sinful man and myself. That's why we're spending so much time, even during our Bible study, talking about Christ as mediator, because this is such an important truth. We see later on in Ephesians chapter number 1, it tells us there in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance is His inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe according to the working of His mighty power? which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. Notice Paul in that prayer of thanksgiving between verses 15 and 23 is acknowledging that it's God the Father that has put all these things into his Son's hands. We also need to understand that the word beloved also recalls other language that Paul uses with regard to this. It brings into view the reality that even Jesus Christ himself is a direct object of God's electing love. If you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. We see, again, I mentioned as we introduced Ephesians, that Ephesians and Colossians cover a lot of the same material. It covers it from a little bit different of a viewpoint, but the material is very similar. But he says there in Colossians 1 verse 12, he says, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. Paul, as he's speaking here, remarks about giving thanks unto the father which has made us there's that phrase again we saw in ephesians wherein he hath made us we see god the father and his operation here he is the one that has made us acceptable to made us worthy through his son it gives us this wonderful picture 1 peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 21 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 21. The Apostle Peter, of course, reminding here, he's been dealing with the subject of this incorruptible inheritance. And he makes reference, <clears throat> makes reference as well as to where this acceptance has come from and how the, God the Father has uh, placed in His own Son the object of His own love. 1 Peter 1, verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. We see the Father has placed the emphasis on the Son as that sole object, that sole way of acceptance. Probably the two most familiar illustrations of when God the Father actually spoke the words beloved about His Son appear At Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration. Let's first of all look at the Father's words at the baptism of Jesus. We'll look at the account in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. And you'll see the Father using that word, beloved. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. Some of your Bibles actually might have a, if it's a study Bible or uh, may have even a title here that says something along these lines, the baptism of the beloved son. Verse 13 says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Notice the phrase, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Singular, directed at one source, directed at the Son. And then the transfiguration, Matthew 17, verses 1-13. through I want us to see this. The transfiguration of Jesus and looking again for the Father's words, declaring His Son to be the Beloved. Matthew 17, verse 1, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, And bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man... Be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed, likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Lots going on in that narrative. But of course, again, I want you to see the voice from heaven was the voice of God declaring, this is my beloved son. The only way man finds acceptance with God is through his beloved son. Acceptance in the beloved as a result means that Christ ought to be beloved by the believer. Why should we love the Lord? It seems like a simple question. But we should love the Lord because of His love for us. We don't love the Lord because of all the good things He does for us day to day. We love the Lord because of His love for us. His love for us is because God the Father first loved Him. We do praise God and we do love God for what He's done for us. But we thank the Lord for our acceptance with Him. Imagine being accepted in your person. There would be no acceptance. Our acceptance is found only in the blood and the righteousness of Christ, which God the Father declares, this is where my acceptance lies. If you want my acceptance, it must come through my Son. Imagine the reality here that when God the Father looks upon His Son, He's always pleased. By way of application, if God just simply looked upon us and our actions and our words and our deeds apart from the righteousness of Christ, He would be far from pleased. If our acceptance is based upon us pleasing God, he would never be pleased with us. There would never be a moment in time when we're doing better than the previous day. And we, we measure our spirituality this way, sadly. We say, I'm having a good day spiritually. And sometimes we may not say it, but maybe we think it. We may say, you know, God must really be pleased with me today. How good I've done. God's not pleased with our work at all. He's only pleased with us because he looks at his son and he's pleased with his son. You said, but preacher, I had such a good day yesterday. I, I gave, I helped, I prayed three times. I was walking around the house singing praise hymns and, and I did nothing but was a, in the presence of God yesterday. If it wasn't for Christ, you would not be accepted. Now, all those things, I hope they're true, but I hope they're all the outflow of because of what Christ has done for us. That's why we respond that way. It's really easy for you and I to get to the place in our life when we begin to think, well, compared to my other church-going family, God's certainly pleased more pleased with me than He is with them. I mean, they told me what they did last week and I didn't do anything near that bad. Without Christ, He's not pleased with either one of you. I could stand up and I could preach the entire counsel of God. But if it's not done in Christ, God the Father is not going to be pleased. Because it's only in Christ that acceptance is found. I am not accepted because of anything I'm doing today. You are not accepted because you showed up at church this morning. You are not accepted because you put something in the offering box today. You are not accepted because you were baptized. You're not accepted because you pray. You're accepted in the beloved through the he who is the beloved, Christ. My entire acceptance in God rises and falls in Christ alone. Imagine, and again, this is no one of those great mysteries. God is so pleased with his son, God the Father so pleased with his son that when he sees those that are his, those who are the objects of his electing love. He sees his son, and somehow, some way, he's pleased with us, even though we know there's nothing that he should be pleased with us about. Because he sees his son. Not because he sees our good works. Imagine when we talk about and we sing hymns like Amazing Grace, if we really thought that that Amazing Grace rested upon our acceptance with God in something that we did. What makes grace amazing is not the reality of what we think we could be in Christ, but what we really are in Christ. There's a big difference in what man thinks he is and what he really is. What I really am in Christ is what the Bible declares I am, not what I think I am. To be accepted into beloved is the acceptance of grace. Grace Most clearly defined is the free favor of God. I know the acronym has often been given for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's helpful. But grace is really the free favor of God. Yes, it's grace, it's riches at Christ's expense, but it's favor. To be accepted of God is to have the favor of God. He freely gave us or accepted us in the beloved. It was the riches of His grace that grants us our standing in Christ. That's why it links all these things together. If the Apostle Paul had just written verse 6, and verse 6 was the first verse of the opening of this epistle, We would miss all the links in the chain. We would miss the reality that before we get to the acceptance, we cannot ignore the reality of adoption. We cannot ignore the reality of choice or election. We cannot ignore the reality of predestination, even though these words make many, many church-going folk very uncomfortable. You want to stir up a hornet's nest, walk into churches and say you believe in predestination and I'm telling you, you'll have a fight on your hand. You will have a fight on your hands. Man cannot stand the idea that God is behind it all. But yet it leaves us with one conclusion. If God's behind it all, all of my praise and all the glory only goes to one and that goes to God alone. Remember when we did our exposition through 2 Thessalonians. I've referred back to this a couple of times, but 2 Thessalonians 2, when Paul was uh, dealing with the the believers there. Remember, he was speaking to them not in an evangelistic way that they might come to Christ and repent. He was speaking to them, reminding them. Remember from our study in Thessalonians, there had been a, a deceptive letter that is by tradition believed to have been passed through that People thought they had missed the second coming of Christ. I'm sure you remember that. But Paul says in verse 13 of Second Thessalonians 2, he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtain of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. What happens to the believer, the true believer who knows their acceptance is found in Christ alone, is they find great comfort in these truths. I've said many, many times, and I won't bore you with all the details again, I never had a very peaceful, comfortable thought about my standing in Christ until I came to the realization by God's good grace that He was the one responsible for it. I spent more years of my earthly life struggling with the reality of am I really in God? And it wasn't until the truths and the comfort came understanding, because son, this is not about what you've done. This is not about who you are. This is not about your worthiness. This is not about you bringing me anything I don't need because you've been missing the the true pinnacle of this. This has all been by my grace. Which leads me to only go one place. It leads me to go humble. It doesn't lead me pride. It doesn't lead me arrogance. It brings humility. Because I can't for any reason, and still to this day, I can't give God one good reason why he saved me. If somebody put me in a corner and say, why did God save you? I would have to say, he saved me by his grace. Well, certainly they might say, you certainly must have done something to earn his favor. No, I didn't. If anything, if it would be possible, I went into the negative. Right? If, if you judge me by my works, if you judge my acceptance of God by what I do every day, I'm millions of deeds into the negative. So even if I started doing a whole bunch of good works today, I'd never catch up. I'd never be able to even get back to level. Why? Because God knows exactly who I am and knows exactly that apart from him and his grace, nobody's accepted. All the human mind feels more comfortable in saying, I earned my acceptance with God. And maybe that's because part of our society promotes that. You want to be accepted by a group? Do this, this, and this. You want to be accepted by a particular ideology, or ideology? Then do these things. The reality is, is God didn't need anything from us. And still to this day, I'm not doing anything for God that adds to my acceptance with him. Think about it this way. Christ is so eternally acceptable to God the Father that acceptance is sufficient to extend over all those who are in Christ. I don't know how many millions... And that may not be the right number. You know, people who say, if you believe in election, that just means a very small amount of people are going to be saved. I don't necessarily take that opinion. I believe, and that's again, I can't back this up scripturally because I don't know a man, I don't know a man or woman's heart. But I believe there are billions of people throughout all of eternity, throughout all of history, who God has set his love upon. And we get so caught up in the realities of saying, that just seems so unfair. Billions of people God has set his love upon. But Christ is so acceptable to the Father that no matter how many more generations go, no matter how many more decades, years, centuries that this world goes on, where God is still calling men to himself, Christ will be just as sufficient for the many, many more millions of people, if it be, who were brought into the family of God. And every one of them, their acceptance will have to be in Christ alone. Every believer that is accepted before God is accepted through Jesus Christ. Nothing comes but by him. We begin and we end where we began. He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Be encouraged. Be comforted in the reality of why you are accepted. And it is through Christ and through Christ alone. Let's finish this morning with our reading from the Valley of Vision. We're on page 334. 334. And this is entitled, A Disciple's Renewal. It's in chapter number 8. And we'll read and we'll pray and we'll sing a closing hymn together. A Disciple's Renewal, O oh, my Savior, help me. I am so slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I am in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I am pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my sullied conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while light shines around me. Take the scales from my eyes. Grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, meditate on thee, gaze on thee. Sit like Mary at thy feet. Lean like John on thy breast. Appeal like Peter to thy love. Count like Paul all things done. Give me increase and progress in grace. So that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can be found only in the Creator. Let not faith cease from seeking thee until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, thou King of kings and Lord of lords that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. Let's stand together and we'll sing the hymn When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.